New York is the least preserving of all the major cities that I know personally. You know, the Rem Kohlhaas quote that I use, New York is a city that will be replaced by another city. That's a, a fundamental truth about the place. And various paths are superimposed onto other paths. If you look at geological time, it's only going to change. Like the only stable thing that we can understand is that it won't be the same, that the sea level will be different, the coast will become something else. People that live here will do something else or move somewhere else. And life will, if it continues, carry on differently. That's Arthur Lucasant. And architect Catherine Sievert. I'm Carrie Mae Weems. Welcome to Artists Among Us, a podcast from the Whitney Museum of American Art that reimagines American art and history. In this five-part season, we're looking at the changing landscape of the Meatpacking District of New York through the lens of the artist David Hammond's sculpture, Days In. In episode three, we explored the communities that frequented the piers. In this episode, we'll look at an aspect of Manhattan that we don't tend to think about, one that's had a long history of radical change, its coastline. It, too, becomes part of day's end's meaning. But sculpture, material, and process have an enormous impact on the way we understand them. A glossy, luminous, carved sculpture from marble is very different from one that's molded from clay. Day's Inn is different again. It's been designed to stand permanently in the Hudson River. Storms, rising sea levels, and other aspects of climate change have been a part of the work's conception. Building it has required an effort to anticipate the future, but it also carries echoes of the past. Let's remind ourselves of what this sculpture actually looks like. Here's Adam Weinberg director of the Whitney Museum. It's a building without doors, without windows, without walls, without ceiling, without floor. So it's not a building. It's sort of like a drawing because it's a, you know, it's a, a drawing in space, but yet it's not physically a drawing, it's a sculpture. It's like how people draw stick figures in a way. You know, so this becomes the kind of steady-state frame through which we see other things as it evolves and changes. The frame is exactly the size of the old pier building that Gordon Mata Clark carved. In 1975, a warehouse building became the first Days Inn, and it was torn down four years later. It doesn't look that big. But you realize that it's 345 feet long. It's longer than the size of this building itself, the Whitney building. It's absolutely, it's, I would say massive, but it's not massive because there's not mass to it. It's enormous in its shape. So it shows you that kind of ghost-like memory of like, I remember how big it was, or I remember the space it contained, but it's somehow become very ephemeral at the same time where the air and the light can pass right through it. To create the sculpture, a team of architects, engineers, ecologists, and manufacturers came together to collaborate with David and the museum. Catherine Sievert. What's been really interesting about Day's End and the collaboration we've been doing here is really thinking about the site around the project and how the Whitney's neighborhood in some ways is part of the project. So its place in the neighborhood, how it sees its history, and how the structure of the sculpture actually starts to give 
breedings to that sort of ecological history of the waterfront at the Whitney site. Jessamine Fiore is the curator as well as the co-director of the Gordon Mata Clark Estate. I think that when you look at the old photographs of Dezen, particularly the ones where you see the skyline in the background, and I'm so excited to compare those to what is going to be that same angle with the David Hammond sculpture, because I think it is going to be shocking, that snapshot of how much this side of Manhattan has transformed. Matt Clark made days and knowing full well that one day it would be gone. And Hammonds has worked with the idea of the transient and ephemerality before, too. Indeed, earlier in this series, we looked at one such work that brings up these questions. It's called The Blizzard Ball Sale. Fantastic work of art. NYU professor of media studies, Laura Harris. The very famous performance piece in which he, you know, spreads out a blanket and offers snowballs for sale on the streets of New York. Art historian, Kelly Jones. In winter, in pop-up markets, or they're kind of alternative kind of markets people used to have around Cooper Union and elsewhere where people put a blanket on the street and sell you a few little things. So he would sell snowballs. Artist Glenn Lycon. The snowballs on the street wasn't uh, announced. It just happened. Well, I love David Hammonds's piece with the snowballs when he sold snowballs down on Cooper Square. Um, and I think there's nothing more ephemeral than something that melts away. And I always wonder, and others have wondered, what does it sound like when ice melts? Is there a sound? And then when you expand that question, what does it sound like when the glacier's melting? What does it really, what does climate change sound like? Um, so I think certainly sound and things that melt away are probably the most ephemeral things there are. It's there and then it's gone. Those snowballs are just sort of the best idea or way of capturing something about ephemera that the piece does as well. The Blizzard Ball sale happened in 1983, and much later, in the summer of 2019, David revisited the work for an exhibition held in Los Angeles. Framed on the wall was an old letter from a prospective collector. The name was blotted out, and the collector was hoping to buy one of the snowballs. But the collector had a complaint. The snowball was too expensive, and no insurance company would insure them. Near the letter, there was a bowl holding just about a melted snowball's worth of water. It was David's way of saying, you can spend all the money you want, but you can't stop time. Eventually, someone's going to unplug the freezer. I'd like to say, money won't change it, but time will take you on. Compared with the enormous days in, this new look in her old work is simply a modest gesture. But in both works, there's a bow to the unstoppable force of nature. Of course, in the Hudson River, those forces have a different kind of force, a brute force. Ecologist Bernice Rosenzweig. 
what really changed the face of what Manhattan looked like in terms of its modern or its pre-development landscape was the, the most recent ice age. During the most recent ice age, around, you know, roughly 15,000 years ago, the glaciers, we have ice glaciers in far north and we have sea ice in the Arctic. During the most recent ice age, the glaciers made it as far south as New York City and they got just south of Manhattan. So they run through Brooklyn and parts of Staten Island, and that's where they ended. Um, but Manhattan itself, like many other northern U.S. cities, was just carved by glaciers. So you can think about how these, these enormous walls of ice just scraped over this very hard rock and, and carved it away over thousands and thousands of years. Eric Sanderson. Because of the geological history of Manhattan, because it was a glaciated landscape, the Wisconsin Glacier 20,000 years ago, and when glaciers retreat, they leave these sort of beds of sand and silt and till over the top of the bedrock. So the bedrock was scraped down to be, you know, by the ice, and then these sediments are laid on top of it, and then that's what the soil and the vegetation forms on. The meatpacking district is on somewhat higher ground in feet, I'd say like maybe 20 feet above sea level. Whereas if you go further south into what most New Yorkers would call lower Manhattan, it was actually much lower in elevation. And there were natural springs and there were also actual freshwater streams and tidal creeks that crisscrossed across the landscape. There's an early description that talks about a small valley amongst three hills, a small triangular valley, which is pretty much where the Whitney is today. There was a beach, but you wouldn't have to walk too far to find another a stream or a spring to drink fresh water. And it's 66 miles of streams on Manahata. There is something really lovely about a, a stream. And then, you know, I, I always love the place where, where streams come out to the ocean. To like imagine the beach and the fresh water running across the beach and then the Hudson River, you know, kind of where the Whitney is and the West Side Highway, it just kind of blows the mind. There are places where, where, you know, the city has invested or the state in some cases has invested in creating parks that really do try to recreate, you know, the natural landscapes and the natural ecosystems that were there pre-development. They've restored a lot of the pre-development wetlands or attempted to restore a lot of the pre-development wetlands. You know, if you look at the right angle, maybe you can pretend you're seeing what the, the Lenape saw before European settlement in this area. Educator and Riverkeeper President Paul Gallet. Close your eyes and imagine Manhattan 400 years ago. The shoreline was different. It was all natural, none of the fill that's been brought in to make the coastline so homogenous and flattened out existed. You had sinuous coastlines and you had nearshore communities of wading birds, vegetation above and below the surface. You had an intertidal zone that was filled with mussels, clams and oysters, and critters that made the biodiversity of the Hudson legend. It's this sort of biogeographic boundary. And then it's this really important place for migratory birds because of the way it fits into the Northeast coastline. 
and not to mention the fish runs that were been going up and down the, the Hudson River right off of where the Whitney is today. But I often think about Hudson because, you know, Hudson, he was looking for something that we have in abundance, which is planes from China, you know, and international trade. <laughs> That's what he wanted. And he missed the thing that was so valuable about the place he was then, which was the ecological value and all the relationships of all the plants and animals and the, the long-term history that had created that kind of resilience in the place before him. But he was completely blind to it. And of course, today, that's the most valuable thing. You can't find a place that is as wild as Manahata was 400 years ago. Before the European first contact, it was said that during the spring migrations of the dozens and dozens of species of fish that make the Hudson their home, that there were so many fish during those spring runs that you could practically walk on the backs of the fish the river didn't run blue at those times. It ran silver with the sun glinting off the backs of those fish. Conservationist Pete Melanowski is the co-founder and the executive director of the Billion Oyster Project. There are accounts of, of people sailing into New York Harbor and catching fish just by lowering a basket over the side of the boat and pulling it back up. So if we were here then, we wouldn't just be seeing this little peanut bunker. We, you know, Actually, the, our view would be full of fish. Curtis Zuniga is a Lenape Indian. You know, there's a tidal basin part that flows inward, and then you've got the ice and snow flow downriver toward the open bay. So you've got these different currents going on. In our Lenape ways, the waters are a female spirit. With those tides and its constant movement, there's a connection with that spirit. You can connect it with the moon, which is also a female spirit the moon affecting tides. So you can imagine like a raindrop falling 400 years ago would fall and come down through the trees and maybe down the trunk and into the, to the soil. And then, you know, if the roots didn't pick it up or something there, it would flow, you know, over the course of the bedrock through these beds of sands and silts and then emerge into a spring or a stream and then flow trickling down to the shore. You had no barrier. There was no hard barrier between the river and the island of Manhattan. You had villages that uh, were temporary villages that were seasonal. Uh, the Native American communities of the 16th and 17th centuries would have these settlements and go from one to another. Uh, depending upon the season, depending upon the sources of food and shelter that made most sense for the season. George Stonefish. Most New Yorkers, if you ask them what natives met the Dutch, they don't know. They don't know it was the Lenape. Oh, they'll tell you about it. But we know they sold the island of Manhattan for $24. We came from this area and we were chased ultimately and we were massacred at that one spot that we presently are at now. And that whole history, people should know of. A lot of things that are written in books were done by these historians and people in the military, people in trade and commerce, people in the churches, missionaries and the like. They wrote extensively about the Lenape and many other tribes. So in a lot of ways, we have to learn from their history. 
I've been asked to come back and speak at functions. Well, will you come and do a land acknowledgement statement? And yes, I can acknowledge that we are on the indigenous lands of the Lenape people, and I can tell brief stories of history. But that still puts us in the past. It's time to raise our voices. I not only want land acknowledgement, what I want is land equity. We've lost so much. We have lost so much traditional knowledge. Now we've not lost our culture. I can still pray in Lenape. Geologically speaking, the greatest change to Manhattan may have occurred during the Ice Age nearly 20,000 years ago. But the invasion of the Dutch and the violent uprooting of the Lenape in the early 1600s severely impacted the coastline as well. A lot of people ask me when do they think the biggest change was in Manhattan in the last 400 years. But I actually think the probably most dramatic changes were right after the Dutch came to settle in 1624. The shoreline very quickly went from being bucolic to industrialized, and everything shifted. Everything shifted so hard, and everything that we did to the waterfront to create that industrial boom became just a remnant. And we had uh, decades and decades and generations of industrial and economic glory because of those changes. And then when everything shifted, we suddenly realized that now the bill had come due and the ecosystems had been destroyed and the coastline was also just falling into the water and just a terrible remnant of even what it was. Artist Alan Michelson recently made an augmented reality installation at the Whitney called Sapakanakan. Which in the Lenape language is thought to mean tobacco field or place where tobacco grows. Which offered visitors visions of what the museum site might have looked like when the Lenape lived here. The work consists of a ring of virtual tobacco plants. And the plants are good-sized. Tobacco plants are good-sized plants. And I based them on my sister's garden at Six Nations Reserve. And so I was fascinated by the fact that the name of that Lenape settlement had survived and that the Whitney landed on that site 400 years later. So it's a significant site, a significant native site, one of you know many that basically are covered with concrete and buildings, not just in Manhattan, but across the country. Michelson invites us to reflect on what once existed in this spot. It was a way of putting something there that was sort of both there and not there. And that's maybe how uh, a lot of indigenous sites uh, function. There, there was something there, it's no longer there. And how do you grasp that? And so this was, this was an attempt to uh, uh, embody uh, something that would carry that, that sort of message. Some of the stories that I share about our history have to start with creation and life ways that went on for several thousand of years. On this very land, this place that we are now, 
in a larger geographic environment that stretches all the way from, to get my orientation here, stretches all the way from the foothills of, say, about the Catskill Mountains. Once you get north of there, you're in Iroquois country. But say from there, all the way down to Hudson River, down to New York, further past all of New Jersey, and you get down into the Philadelphia area, Delaware River Valley, all of that, that's our original homeland. All the ways that the Lape have been shaping the landscape for thousands of years, all changed pretty much overnight. And then the Dutch, they brought in other things. You know, they brought pigs and cows and, and things they didn't mean to, rats and things, you know, which changed the ecology, right? You know, these, these big mammals, introducing them to a landscape that wasn't used to them, that's a big change. And then diseases that are associated with that too came with them. So, and I, you know, I think that was probably the most, most dramatic change. Architect Catherine Sievert. When one thinks about the landscape or ecology, there's actually, it's an invented word. So it's, it's really ecology goes back to a Greek word that gets picked up in around 1840, 1850. And uh, it's loosely translated as the household of nature which I've always loved because it's more, it's about how things work together in systems as opposed to individual, you know, fish, bird, plant. So the household of nature really encompasses everything and everyone and how they interact. And those, those transactions and interactions are fluid. They change over time, but they're always there. And there's often traces of them embedded in even like the, the soils or those filled land, who knows what it's encompassing, but there are people and animals and plants and seeds, all part of that whole household. It's not just nice, clean soil from somewhere, <laughs> tidally stacked up. Guy Nortensen is the structural engineer who oversaw the construction of Day's Inn. Historically, the bottom of Manhattan Island has been expanded over the years repeatedly, sometimes formally, sometimes informally, by just dumping all kinds of things over the edge, usually on the inside of some kind of wall that contains it, you know. So the, um, the general approach is you build a wall out in the water and then you displace the water with landfill. And that went on throughout the uh, mostly 19th century. Ecologist Bernice Rosenzweig. When landfilling operations happen today, in the United States, it used, it's typically done with clean sand. And there's so much demand for that type of clean sand that it's actually in short supply globally. But historically, whatever was available was used for filling land. So you had the supply of stuff, whether that was coal ash, whether that was construction debris, whether that was soil or clay from an excavation, whether it was bricks, whatever just happened to be available. And you had this demand for space as the city grew and developed. They weren't thinking ahead about sea level rise or coastal storms or things like that. And so they tend to be the lower parts of New York City today, and so the areas that are more prone to flooding. So it's really an interesting story, and it's really um, a mystery as to what's actually there. Some researchers have started to do some work to try to reconstruct what those, those landfill sediments are like. So it's really kind of an unknown, but it's really interesting to think about how our human activities um, really drove these radical transformations of the whole landscape and define our city today. Kelly Jones is an art historian. 
Creative Time had a program called Art on the Beach, uh, which was on New York City landfill, leading up to its being taken over and made into luxury housing of Battery Park City. This kind of area of Lower Manhattan, uh, which is kind of uh, kind of landfill area, discarded shoreline, if you will, is uh, transformed into spaces for artist projects for a number of years. Guy Nordensen. And at that time, they solicited proposals from teams of architects and artists for the most part. I got involved in the one in 1985, and most of that was empty land and quite sandy. So it felt like a beach. As it turned out, Guy had met David once before when David did his Delta Spirit piece, Art on the Beach. Hammonds was there every day that, that, that I was out there building our project, hammering away at this shack which he had um, covered with bottle caps. But it was a um, small building, tall and thin, with a peaked roof, and just covered up with all kinds of things that he nailed on onto it, but on a platform. So it was, it, you know, again, being on the beach in the presence of water, you kind of had the feeling that this was, you know, raised up a little bit to get out of the water. So it sort of captured the spirit of being on the edge in a place that could potentially flood. He based it, as he told me at that time, in, you know, kind of vernacular architecture. Things that he actually did work with an architect, but he wanted it to seem just kind of more vernacular. Things that people just who were untrained in some ways, will put together something that is, as he said, nothing fits, but everything works, (laughs) right? And it's all 32nd off an inch, right? It also becomes a space for performance where Sun Ra comes and performs. So it's actually a functional space. And, And looking at it from another angle, we can also see it as a kind of a community center in another way. So I think those are some of his inspirations. Um, But also we can think about the fact that it's on the beach. He's done pieces at the water, pieces that are kind of at the edge of our existence, our human existence, something that takes us to you know, just the edge of land, the edge of the city, uh, the edge of the country. You know, the beach was one of his sites on the West Coast. How is this beach different? How is the Hudson River different from, you know, uh, the Pacific Ocean? (laughs) What's the difference? What's the difference when New Jersey is right across the way? You know, what's the difference when you have the Statue of Liberty down the street? He didn't just show up, build the thing, and go away. He was there the entire duration of the, of the process, which was quite different than, I think, most of the other installations there. And so it was a kind of occupation, you know, and um, that, that, that I, really, uh, I was really struck by. And I think that, you know, spiritually and, and in, a, in, in many ways, 
you know, day's end is that kind of presence and occupation. You know, very different in that it's, I mean, it's spiritual also, right? But it's, it's all about um, absence as well as, as presence. We might imagine days in as a frame, a container of sorts, through which you can see the city, the coastline, and over time, bear witness to the changes that will continue to come. In terms of the structure, it seemed pretty clear, actually, from David Hammond's sketch, what it would be. You know, there were details that evolved over time, but I, you know, I was excited about the potential for it being quite thin in the spirit of what the sketch showed and what that would mean structurally, how that could be done. It's always interesting to think about something that stays in the same place while everything around it is changing. So the poles above the water stop above the water and are set on concrete columns that come out of the water. And those are located so that when the tides go up and down, they're going up and down along the concrete columns so that the upper structure, which is steel, doesn't get in the water except maybe in a storm. And then underneath that concrete, there's piles that are driven piles of steel, and they go all the way down to the rock. So there's actually 150 feet of structure, really, below the water, even more if you include the water depth. And then above that, you have the structure, which is about 50 feet tall, like an iceberg. There's more below than there is above. What really stands out about human-induced climate change is that it's happened so fast. We've just taken so much carbon that accumulated over such long time scales and just released it within, you know, really 200 years, most within 100 years. Um, and if we keep doing that at an increasing rate, the, the climate is gonna change just so much faster. As the globe warms and sea levels rise, the water is also gonna get warmer. And warmer waters, warmer coastal waters fuel stronger storms. When you build a structure like a bridge or this sculpture, then you're out in the elements. And so then you're not only worried about extreme events like hurricanes or floods or earthquakes for that matter, but you're also worried about the daily wear and tear, corrosion, waves, all that. By 2050, the projections are that we're going to have 20 inches of sea level rise by 2050. That's only 30 years from now. We don't know what our communities will look like after that sea level has risen. Clearly the sculpture, um, you know, 99% of the time is just going to see tides going up and down, but there'll be occasions where there's a storm or heavy wind, or even things that might hit it, carried by the water, ice, you know. So I, I think I was pretty 
tuned into the fact that there's a lot of different things that come down the river that could um, have an effect that would all have to be taken into account. It's being designed as a structure that will be impenetrable to corrosion or, or what would have been called rot if it were made of wood. So it's, it's trying to be outside of time. I think that's really interesting. And it's beautiful in that it has a kind of way of being there and then disappearing. I think it will disappear at night. It's not to be lit at night. And I think it will start to fade in certain light conditions or reflections of water and sky and atmosphere may make it even more ephemeral. Yet it's being designed as something that's very permanent, that it won't fail, that it will not collapse, that it will not rust. So it's it's both present and absent at the same time. So it's, it's very interesting. Artist Alan Michelson. It's trying to surface something that is not otherwise visible. And it's a, it's a good thing. I think people lived that land a certain way for a long time. And the fact that things have changed and that that land no longer sustains that kind of activity uh, is not a reason for it to be forgotten or for it to be completely erased. And so I think it's important to, um, to do public uh, monuments, but I don't think they have to be the way they've typically been in this individualistic uh, sort of American way where it's just white male generals and things commemorated in statues. I think they can be much more relevant and you know beautiful. And I hope that David's monument does that. Choreographer Bill T. Jones. It's kind of a brilliant idea that he wants to recall a building that is no longer there a building that represented the masters of industry that have built this town. When they looked at a, a, a beachfront, what they saw was an opportunity, and they polluted it and made it ugly, ugly, ugly. David Hammond comes on years later in light of the brand-new, glowing Whitney Museum, and he wants to bring that ghost back. So what is he driving at? It sounds like he's in love with the artist as a magician. The artist is provocateur, who does not have to make objects, but the gestures are as eloquent as any object you could make. You've been listening to Artists Among Us, a podcast series from the Whitney Museum of American Art. Now that we've come this far, in the final episode of the series, will return to the sculpture that inspired it, David Hammonds's Day's End. Does Hammonds's piece conjure the ghosts of those who were removed or are still being removed to make space for the renewal of this part of the city? The ghosts or the shadows that are perhaps still warm and that he wants us to perceive here? If it is a monument, who or what is being memorialized here and to what end? And is that memorialization celebration or mourning? Thank you to everyone who contributed to this podcast. Catherine Sievet, Guy Nordenson, Laura Harris, Paul Gallet, Glenn Ligon, Jessamine Fiore, Eric Sanderson, Bernice Rosenswag, Adam Weinberg, Kelly Jones, Luke Sant, Alan Michelson, Pete Malinowski, and Bill T. Jones. Thanks also to oral historian Sarah Sinclair, who interviewed George Stonefish and Curtis Zuniga. 
Special thanks to El Nicochea, Sofia Ortega Guerrero, Eliza Senna, Jackie Foster, and Helena Gusick. Thank you to our host, Carrie Mae Weems. Original music for Artists Among Us and Day's End was created by Daniel Carter and his collaborators. This podcast was produced by Sound Made Public with Tani Katanjian, Katie McCutcheon, Jeremiah Moore, Mawena Tendar, and Philip Wood. It was produced in collaboration with the Whitney Museum of American Art, including Ann Bird and Emma Quaitman. Mm-hmm.